Well, it's me again. Good morning, Journey. It's good to see you this morning. We are, uh, I just want to start and just tell you how grateful I am uh, to be uh, up here this morning and how grateful I am for all of you in the way that you have served our church over the last six weeks or more. Uh, you know, the one, the, one of the last things that uh, Dan said when he left was don't sit on your gifts. And a lot of you have stepped up and served using the gifts that you have in all sorts of ways. And so I just want to tell you that blesses me and that you all are a blessing to our church. And so for those of you that have stepped up in new ways, thank you. For those of you that have continued serving because you've been serving for a long time, thank you. For those that are still not sure if you want to serve, let's go. All right, let's do that. So uh, real quick, just quick review of where we've been. Uh, we have been in a series, or we, we finished a series over Holy Week that we called The King is Coming, creatively titled when it says, see Jerusalem, your king is coming. Um, and so we talked about the fact that the king, King Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday, that he died on the cross on Good Friday, and that he was risen on Easter. And so we spent just Holy Week looking at the fact that Jesus is a king and that he has come. And the last thing that kind of that we saw last week as we looked at the resurrection was that Jesus as the king who was raised back to life, one of, the, the, one of the last things he said in Matthew 28 is he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He's a king with all authority. But we also saw that when people saw the risen king, they were filled with joy. Those that saw the risen king, that, that really saw him, that saw him for who he was, worshiped him and were filled with joy. And we're starting a new series today through the letter of Philippians, through the letter of Philippians. So why would I bring up, you know, Easter and all that? Well, that's because Easter obviously emanates all throughout the church, all throughout the year. The fact that he has raised didn't just happen on Easter, he's still raised. And he comes with a gospel, the good news, and, and two things that I think we see in the gospel that actually parallels with what we'll see through the letter of Philippians is this, that it's a gospel of joy and it's a gospel of power, a gospel of joy and a gospel of power. And so that's what we're looking at. That's the title of the series that we're going through the letter of Philippians, gospel joy, gospel power. And, and I think it couldn't be more pertinent for where we are today, both as a church and as just the larger scheme as the church in the world. Philippians, of all the letters, actually is tied with the most times it uses the word gospel. The word gospel, which is the Greek word euangelion, is in Philippians nine times. Nine times. Four chapters, nine times. Now, it's tied with Romans, but Romans is four times the length. It's 16 chapters, nine times. In Philippians, you hear or read the word gospel nine times. Philippians is a gospel-saturated book. And it's very practical. The letter that Paul writes is very practical in the way that the gospel brings joy, the gospel brings power. And, if, and we don't have a ton of time. I do want to be careful with our time today. So uh, I'm just going to briefly mention that it's important for us to understand first kind of the context of Philippians. What is going on in Philippi? Well, 
originally this church was planted, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. This church was planted by Paul in his second missionary journey, and it's the first place the church was planted in Europe. So we hear Jesus make disciples of all nations. We're starting to see it spread not just beyond Jerusalem and Asia, but now it's getting into Europe by Acts 16. And we see different people converted. We see Lydia. She's the first convert. She is religious. She is going down to the river to pray. And the Bible says in Acts 16, 14, that the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to hear Paul and to believe. It's a gospel that brings power. But yet, not long after that, Paul being followed by this slave girl who is owned by masters and has a, a spirit of divination is following along Paul and his crew and, hey, listen to these people. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And I mean, you'd think he'd like that. I don't know if he was just kind of like seeing that and, and the spirit of divination tied to his gospel and didn't like that. He was annoyed. So he looks at her and he basically rebukes the evil spirit out of her and she now no longer has the power to tell fortunes and she loses the ability to make money for her masters and they're not too pleased. And so what you see in Philippi is not just a gospel of power to save, but it's a gospel of power of deliverance and yet that type of power runs into a lot of problems when you've got Rome in charge. And so Paul and his crew, they're beat. Paul and Silas are in jail for preaching the gospel. And here's what you'll see, as you guys have probably heard, if you've read the Bible or been in church long, there was this guy, there's a jailer, right? And Paul and Silas are in jail, being flogged and yet singing hymns, singing hymns, joy, gospel joy, gospel power. And the jailer, through an earthquake and some subsequent events, comes to faith in Jesus and his whole household. The gospel comes into Philippi about 50 AD and changes all kinds of things. It changes all kinds of things. And so you have this church in Philippi. It's a Roman colony, Philippi is. It is predominantly settled by retired Roman officers. So you've got high Roman nationalism and you've got paganism going on. And yet in the midst of all of that, God is planting his church. God is planting his church. And here we are 11 years later-ish, 11-ish years later, and Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest. He is waiting to see Nero. If you know much about Nero, he's not a good dude. He's waiting to see Nero, and Nero's basically going to tell him, yay or nay, on what you're doing here. Um, and so as he's waiting, the church at Philippi, out of great love for Paul, send a gift. They send him a gift through Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus shows up, gives him this gift. And this letter is Paul's response back to the people in Philippi. And so what we see, I, I find it interesting that here it is 11-ish years later, the church is still growing. And I find a little bit of similarities in the room. Obviously, there's a lot difference between us and Philippi, but, but guess journey is about 11 years old. Like the age of our church is about the same as this church in Philippi. How, how many of you, just raise your hand and keep them up if you don't mind. How many of you have been here for a year, at least a year, okay? How many of you have been here three years? How about five years? Okay. How about eight years? 
How about from the beginning? It's awesome. You see, we've got people all over the room that have been here for a total different amount of time. Some relatively new, some five years, some have been here from the get-go. And for those of you that have been here a long time, you can say like, yeah, Journey was started, and when Journey was started with a desire to see people that had not yet been reached of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can say, man, we saw a baptism water splash on the ground, man. We saw people saved. And we have seen people over 11 years come to know Jesus. We have seen joy. We've seen power in the gospel that changed lives, but we've also been hurt. We've seen sadness. We've seen people disillusioned with the faith. And so what I would posit for us today and for the next few weeks is this, that the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote, is important for us to glean from what it would look like for us to continue to walk in gospel joy and gospel power. And what might the Lord continue to do in us in the coming 11 years and beyond if we keep him at the center with gospel joy and gospel power? So we're gonna start today, I'm gonna read Philippians 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be, Philippians 1 through 11, today. Starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, the knowledge, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I'm going to be real blunt from the get-go. When we looked, and I say we mean Kevin and I, were looking at where we might want to go uh, from beyond Easter as far as teaching, um, we looked at several letters, but this one jumped out at me for a few reasons. Some of them I've already mentioned. But one of the biggest reasons this jumped out at me was verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so what I kind of titled this message is confidence in the completion of God's work. Confidence in the completion of God's work But here's the deal. I wonder if some of us here believe that God's work is still going on at Journey. 
I wonder if some of us here, because of the transition that we're in, would actually honestly say, like, I kind of wonder, will the Lord continue to move here? Will he continue to work? Are there people in the community that have talked to you at work, like, what's going on at Journey? And, you know, do you have questions about this? Because I, I would say that there are some people, and I, I would think that if you're still here after the last six weeks, it may not be you. But there are some people that wrestle with, man, what is God going to do at Journey? This is such a big transition. And so what I just want to show you, can I show you from Philippians 1 why I'm confident that God is still at work at Journey? Are you on board for that? Can we do that together? Okay. Here's what we'll see. If you look at the text of Philippians 1, here's what you're going to see, I think. You're going to see two things. Number one, you're going to see a confidence that grows from five ways that the gospel shapes us. That's a little wordy, but I, I want to I reiterate that there's five ways that we will see in this text. There's only 11 verses, but five ways that we'll see in this text that the gospel actually shapes us. And that should give us confidence that God's continuing the work. But here's the other thing that I think should give us confidence is there we will also see a catalyst for ultimate confidence. So five ways that the gospel shapes us that should bring us confidence and then the ultimate catalyst for the confidence that we should have, okay? So first of all, we're just going to work through the passage. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. You will notice what, when he says the word, when he calls them saints, some of your translations may say holy people. Here's the first thing that shapes us about the gospel is we need a gospel-shaped identity. We need a gospel-shaped identity. Again, the gospel, when I say gospel, let me be very clear what I mean by that because this the Greek word euangelion means good news. That's what it means. So when we're saying gospel, we mean the good news of Jesus Christ, that King Jesus came, lived the life we couldn't live, bore our sins on the cross, was raised to life, and is now king of the world. And you can step into his kingdom by faith. You can be justified with God, have peace with God by faith in what Jesus has done. That is the gospel, and that's good news because one of the things it does is that when you become, as you see here, when you become in Christ Jesus, as he says in verse one, you become a saint. Now, I know there are other Christian traditions that elevate certain people in church history to the level of saints, but what Paul says is, no, 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 if you are in Christ, we're all saints. We're all saints. We're all holy people. And some of you may come in today and you don't actually feel like that. You don't feel very holy. You don't feel like, man, why would God call me a saint? Let me encourage you. It's not just because the Philippians are awesome. If you go to 1 Corinthians, which has got tons of problems in the church, the first thing Paul says is to the, to the saints. Because it's not about your work it's not about your work. We need a gospel-shaped identity because we are a gospel-shaped people. Once we were not a people, now we are the people of God and we have a new identity as saints and not just a new identity as saints. You also see, it says verse two, grace to you. So we receive grace and peace from God who? 
our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. We are saints. We are set apart. We are made holy, not by our effort, but by God, by faith in what Jesus has done. That is a gospel-shaped identity. And notice, too, like grace here, it says, later on we'll see that we are partakers of grace. Grace makes us active. Grace to you. First of all, we are passive. We are passive. We receive grace. We receive grace. We don't earn grace. We receive grace. Grace to you from God. Yet, grace makes us active. And that's what we'll see in the rest of the text. So we have a gospel-shaped identity, a gospel-shaped people is who we are. But now what it does is it begins to shape the way that we actually engage. So look at verse, starting in verse 3. The next thing that we see as far as a confidence in the way that the gospel shapes us is we see a gospel-shaped prayer, a gospel-shaped prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. I don't know if Paul knew that. He could have just said y'all, and it would have been quicker. Always in every prayer of mine for y'all, making my prayer with joy. Prayer is a gospel act. The way you can have gospel-shaped prayer is because you're actually praying not to a deity, you're praying to your Father. God, our Father. A gospel-shaped people begin, the grace that we receive flows out in gospel-shaped prayer. Gospel-shaped prayer. Prayer is a way that we participate in the work that God is doing. So how is God completing the work that he began? Well, one way is we engage with him in that work and we do that by gospel-shaped prayer. Not only that, um, you know, Kevin actually mentioned too, I just want to throw this out, uh, when he preached back on April 3rd, he wants us to be a people of prayer because it's saturated in the word that God's people, when they are shaped by the gospel, when they are set apart as saints, that then we respond, one way we respond, one way we participate in what God is up to in the world is we participate by prayer. We, and not only that, we are praying to not just our Father, we're praying to King Jesus, the one who has all authority. We're not praying to God hoping that he has the power to make some changes. We're praying to the God of heaven and earth who sends earthquakes to jails in Philippi when he needs to, who sets people free who takes religious people praying by a river and opens their heart. This is the God we pray to. Some might say, well, why would you pray to a God who's sovereign? And I would say, why would you not? He is your father and he's got all power, gospel power, gospel-shaped prayer. We have a prayer team here at Journey. Uh, and so like if, if this is something that resonates with you, I mean, we are all called to pray if something that resonates with you where you want to either grow in prayer or you feel like, man, God has gifted you just the ability to pray, I would encourage you to, to hook up with either uh, the Lawrences or the Morgans and get involved in the prayer team. And the other thing I would encourage you, this is something that I was challenged by my wife to do a few years ago and I've started trying to do, is that when someone asks you for prayer, pray right then. I mean, if you're like me, I'd be like, I'll pray for you. Did I ever get around to it? Rarely. Rarely. Pray right then. 
Text somebody brings bring somebody if God brings somebody to your mind, text them. Tell them you've been praying for them. And we'll actually pray for them and then text them you've been praying for them. Gospel-shaped prayer, praying to our Father. But the next thing we look at here is what I'm calling gospel-shaped participation. It's the third way that we're shaped by the gospel. Gospel-shaped participation. Notice verse 5. What does he say? He says, verse 4 again, he says, Always in every prayer of mine for y'all, making my prayer with joy, because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he also says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers with me of grace. We are partners and partakers. We are participators. There's a tendency in the church to either do one of two things, to, to think, man, it's, it's all about what I do. I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to, trying to do these things to make him happy. I'm trying to make a difference in the world. And if we do it apart from the gospel, we will be burnt out. But there's another kind of side that people tend to land on, which is more like laziness. But it's masked with like, oh, but it's the gospel, man. God did all the work for me. And he did, but he didn't give us grace to make us passive. We are passive in the reception of grace, but grace also makes us active. We participate. That's why I don't just say we participate, but it's gospel-shaped participation. Because apart from the gospel, your participation will lead you to burnout. And apart from participation, the gospel alone, if you just think all you got to do is just receive, it might make you lazy. We get involved, involved. We partner. We partake in grace. We participate in the work that God is doing among us. Gospel-shaped participation. But the fourth thing that we see is gospel-shaped affection. Look at 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a gospel-shaped affection among people who are shaped by the gospel. You know, I think about uh, the, the movie <clears throat> or the show Band of Brothers. Um, and just, I don't know if you've seen it. It was an old show. It's probably been 15, 20 years ago now. Probably longer than that, actually. Um, but just w- when people go through suffering together, when people go through traumatic incidents together, incidents together, it builds a camaraderie among people. And you can see this here. I mean, Paul's saying, like, you're partnering with me in the gospel You are partaking with me of grace. We are together holy saints uh, of God together. And yet he's like, even in my imprisonment and my defense of the gospel and suffering in hard times and good times, we've been partners together. And that brings what I call gospel-shaped affection. 
We are called together. Many of you in this room, this is not foreign. Like you, you think of people in this room that you just have deep love for. Deep love for. Like when you, like Paul, when you think of this friend or brother and sister in our church, it makes you smile. You pray with joy for these people. We have friends. We've been blessed by so many of you in this church that it brings me joy to pray for you. There's a gospel affection and that's centered around Jesus because we're called together. We're called together. And so we partner with one another. And in partnering in prayer, when you begin to pray for one another, you know, here's another thing. It's like when you pray for somebody that maybe you don't feel affection for, a lot of times that changes. When you pray for your enemies, what you'll find a lot of times is that your heart softens towards them. There's something about partnering in prayer that actually builds gospel-shaped affection for one another. But not only that, they partner in his suffering and they partner in the gospel. There's a gospel-shaped affection. And so we have a new identity, like gospel identity, a new, we become a people. And flowing out of becoming saints, flowing out of a gospel identity, then comes gospel-shaped prayer, gospel-shaped participation. We have gospel-shaped affection, like, we, like he says, I yearn for you. Uh, gospel-shaped affection, but the that I want us to see here with the way the gospel shapes us is we have a gospel-shaped love. We have a gospel-shaped love. Notice verses 9 through 11. Here, you know, Paul says, he goes, I think, in verse 3, I think my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer. Well, now he tells us what he's praying. So he, he tells us in 3 and 4 that he does pray for them. Now we see in verse 9 what he actually prays. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So let me stop there and let's just talk about the type of love this is. Because it's a unique kind of love. It's a unique kind of love. It is love abounding with knowledge and discernment. Now, why would he do that? He tells us, verse 10, this is why he would pray that we would abound more and more in love with knowledge and discernment. Here's what he says, so that, purpose clause, when you see that in Scripture, always look at that, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a unique kind of love because what Paul is basically saying is that as you grow and as you grow in abounding in love, my prayer is that as your love grows, so increasing would be knowledge and discernment. N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, this kind of knowledge is a deep insight into the way the world truly is. Now, why would we need deep insight into the way the world truly is? Well, that's because for us, God has not just set us apart as saints in Christ Jesus for the purpose of just being holy, but it's to be holy in the midst of where we are. Notice he says in verse one, he says, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. At Philippi. 
there's two locations there. There's a positional location. They're in Christ. But there's a physical location at Philippi. God saved them and then left them at Philippi. Why? So that they could be a counterculture where they are. A holy people living in the world. And to do that, to, to live in the world in a way that actually creates change, man, it takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. And it takes wisdom and discernment that flows out of love. When a culture is created that has both love and knowledge and discernment, it's an attractive culture because it's, Jesus is attractive. Jesus is attractive. And so this is a unique way. We are to be a counterculture. They were, and so are we. We are to be a counterculture, but hear me, I wanna say this. We're to be a counterculture where we need to be. Because the point is not to be a counterculture. If you begin to see like, well, the role of being a Christian is to be a countercultural, for us is to be countercultural, then you start to look for places where you can be countercultural. And a lot of times you end up being the, you end up being the stumbling block to Christianity and not the gospel. Anybody met Christians like that, that you're just like, oh, I don't know if I'd believe in Jesus if you were the most, if you were the only representation I had. It's almost like they want to be countercultural to be countercultural. But here's what Scripture is teaching us is that we need to be countercultural where we need to be. If you don't see the point as being countercultural, but you see the point as being the holy, set apart people of God living amongst the world, then where the culture tells us, go this way, and King Jesus says, no, 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 you're this way, we need to not capitulate. We need to, though, be able to celebrate the things that we do see in the culture that are worth celebrating. Because everybody, regardless of their faith in Christ or lack thereof, are image bearers of God. And so you will see things culturally, you arts and music and food, and you can just see things that, that people create and do that aren't believers that we should be like, man, that's amazing that they did that. We don't want to be completely countercultural. Well, we can celebrate things the image bearers of God have done, we should celebrate that it shows God's love to them. But where we need to be countercultural, where the culture says this is this way, we need to have the wisdom and discernment out of love to go, no, I can't capitulate there. I can't, I can't go there with you. And let me tell you why. This is a unique kind of love that Paul is praying for them in the midst of Rome, nationalist colony of Philippi, pagan colony. How can you be an attractive counterculture? Well, you can do it by growing and abounding in love without neglecting knowledge and discernment. The world, the world offers us love without knowledge and discernment. The world will offer you love, but it'll just be without knowledge and discernment. No absolute truth. Just let me live my truth and then love me for what my truth 
is. That's the type of love the world in 2022 wants to offer. Really, it's the type of love they want you to offer them. No knowledge, no discernment, no truth. Just love me for my truth. And the reality is like this actually leads to harm and brokenness because love that's divorced from the reality of the creator will never lead to flourishing of life. If there's a creator who has, who has designed the world the way he has, then there's only really his way that's actually going to lead to flourishing in life. And so when you try to do love without knowledge and discernment, you're going to end up in a train wreck because there is a central understanding of the way the world's designed to be by its creator. And to divorce yourself from that is actually not going to end well. It's going to crush you. And we see that. I mean, anxiety and depression is at astronomical rates. And I think one of the reasons is because we try to take, there is one person who can define your life because he made it. And yet we put the weight of defining your life on the shoulders of children and teenagers and young adults. They, they try to define who they are, then they need your love. And it crushes them. The world offers love without knowledge or discernment. But here's the second thing. False religion offers knowledge without love. False religion offers knowledge without love. And because the driving force of false religion is to whatever your deity is, is to please them or to appease them or to make them love you, then you become the center <clears throat> And it doesn't end well. False religion is about control. You controlling God. You reincarnating to a better life. You hitting some new level of knowledge. And it just, it's all about knowledge and not love. It's about control. And obviously this is always going to lead as well to harm and brokenness, because one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to really believe that you attained it, that you, that you got there, like you're really awesome, and you're going to be completely insufferable, proud. Or you're going to see the massive gap between where you know you're called to be and where you really are, and it's going to crush you. But false religion, knowledge without love, you really are only going to see one of two things. It's going to make you proud or it's going to crush you. And here's the deal. It's not even knowledge. When we, when we say false religion is knowledge without love, it's really not even knowledge because here's what he's getting at, that the knowledge, like N.T. Wright said, at the center of the universe, the, no, the knowledge of who is actually in charge is a God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit that's overflowing with love. It's overflowing with love. There's no way you can actually say that you have knowledge without love because true knowledge comes from the one who's overflowing with love within himself and pours it out on those who he's created. The gospel, the gospel offers an abounding love with knowledge and discernment. It makes us a people shaped by the gospel. <clears throat> so we are shaped by 
the gospel. And by allowing gospel love to shape us, we are able to live in his world by his way, for his glory and his praise. And so five confidences, five ways the gospel shapes us just in these 11 verses that gives us confidence that God, he just might be still working here at Journey. We have a gospel identity. We have gospel-shaped prayer. We engage with one another. We participate through the shaping of the gospel. It drives gospel affections, and we are motivated by a gospel-shaped love. But if you've been here long in the last few weeks, You've heard me say on repeat already, like, if confidence is built around you, you won't be confident for long. You just won't. We need a catalyst for ultimate confidence that God will complete the work. And we see that in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, just being shaped by the gospel is not enough to fully give you confidence. Some of you are already tired and ready to give up. You're already tired and ready to give up. Maybe not on journey, maybe just on Jesus. Some of you are like, man, I'm not near as far along in the process as I thought I'd be. Like, I still struggle with these things. Why is that? How how can I still struggle with this sin? How can I still be so frustrated with my spouse or my kids? And some of you might have doubts of whether God's going to continue to bless your life or bless journey. But here's why we can have ultimate confidence, because the catalyst of the work being completed, it's not you. It's not you. It's God. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is the one who begins the work and God is the one who completes it. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? It's not on you. You just participate. God begins the work and God completes it. King Jesus is the catalyst for continuing the work Because the reality is that the work that he began is that we would be shaped by the good news of his gospel for his glory and for his praise to the ends of the earth. And he will not fail. He does not fail. He doesn't fail. What he begins he completes. So what does this mean as we wrap up? What does this mean for you? Maybe individually, what does this mean for you? Here's, again, N.T. Wright. Here's what he says in his uh, commentary, Paul for Everyone. He says this, individually, Paul knows when the gospel message of King Jesus does its life-changing work in people's hearts. This isn't just a flash-in-the-pan religious experience that might then fade away with the passing of time. If there is genuine faith in the risen Jesus, genuine loyalty to him as king, 
This can only be because the living God has worked through his gospel within people's hearts. And what God begins, he always finishes. If there's genuine faith in the risen Jesus, genuine loyalty to him as king, this can only be because, the only reason you would see that is because God's already at work in your heart. And he's at work in your heart through the gospel and what God begins, he always finishes. You don't have to carry the work to completion yourself. You only need to participate and be a partaker of grace. You only need to participate and be a partaker of grace and the gospel will form you over the long haul. Trust him to do it. Trust him to do it. Be patient in sanctification. That's, sanctification is the Bible word for growing in holiness, to becoming more like Jesus. Be patient in sanctification and be patient with yourself and know that God will do it. But sometimes the harder part is to be patient with others. We're all in this room being sanctified by God if we are in Christ. And we might be at different places along the way. So be a partaker of grace and then give grace to others in your home, in our larger family. Because not only does God begin and finish the work that he begins in you individually, excuse me, but he begins a work in us corporately as a church. I want you to hear me. God began the work at Journey. Do you understand that? God began the work at Journey. Central Baptist Church They participate in prayers with us. They participated with gifts. They've participated and have gospel-shaped affection for us, but brothers and sisters, Central Baptist Church did not begin the work at Journey because God began the work at Central Baptist Church. Our previous leadership They've participated. They've used their gifts. They continue to pray. I talked to one of our previous worship pastors a few weeks ago, just how much he's praying for us. They still have affection for us, but brothers and sisters, our previous leadership did not begin the work. They participated in the work, but they did not begin the work. We are indebted to them, but ultimately, God began the work, and he 
will complete it. Because what he begins, he always finishes. So we need to roll up our sleeves and drop to our knees and get to work. But all the while knowing that we can rest in the fact that he will shape us through the gospel and he will complete the work by the power and joy of King Jesus and the good news that he brings. He will complete the work. Let's dig in with him. Amen. You know, closing here, Paul makes it very clear that God completing the work he began in us individually and corporately are tied together. Look, as messy as it can be, the local church matters. And it matters because God begins and finishes the works that he's doing through the gospel through the local church. He does it through individuals, part of a local church. So let's be partakers of grace together for the glory of his name to the ends of the earth. And my call to action today, if you're here, is very simple. If you would say that you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe you feel more like you, you, you resonate with the world and the way that they think, man, the absolute truth, not really sure about that. I just want to love people. I don't really want to have to I don't know that there's this ultimate knowledge or or discernment that I need to have. Let me just encourage you to to repent of trying to be the king of your life and come to Jesus. Let today be the day that he begins a work in you. If you're here with false religion, would you you ask God to show you that that religion is just going to end in a dead end? Let him begin the work in you. And today, if you're a Christian, take heart. Trust him that he will complete what he's already began in you. Wherever you are today, be encouraged. What he begins, he always finishes. Uh, As we close. We're going to sing. We're going to have a time of response as well. Uh, So Kevin will be down here. I believe Andrea may be down here uh, to pray with you. Like if you have questions, if you have things you want to pray about, um, we would love for you to do that. But as we finish, let's pray and sing and thank God that he's a finisher of what he starts. Our Father, what a gift of grace it is that we can all call you Father. Your gospel is better news than we often realize. And so we admit that we often get frustrated at our lack of growth or the lack of growth in others. And we confess that we often get discouraged. And sometimes we just, even, we just want to quit following you. Would you dig deeper wells for the gospel in our heart? <clears throat> Would you drive us to our knees in prayer for our brothers and sisters and for those who don't know you? Will you bring gospel joy and gospel power to bear in our lives that spills over into Jonesboro and beyond through your people? And would you encourage us today that you are only getting started? You have began a good work in us. May we be diligent in working alongside you as you work in us to the completion of what you've called us to. 
and it's for an end. The beautiful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you.